Blog Talk Radio. Don't mind if you got something nice to say about me. I enjoy an accolade like the rest. And you could take my picture and hang it in. Good morning, and welcome to Solutions Live Business Edition. I'm your host, Chickie Fitzgerald, coming to you from Tampa, Florida. Solutions Live provides practical advice from authors and experts on a wide range of topics for professionals to help you leave your legacy. Well, good morning. It is Tuesday, May 19th, and I am coming to you from Florida, but it is not sunny. Uh, We are having an early uh, rain, and uh, it has been great for two days, so I am looking forward to that sunshine returning. We have an amazing lineup this morning, uh, as usual, and our our first guest, which we will come to in just a moment, is Dan Bricklin, inventor, innovator, blogger, and now author. And then at 10.30, we will welcome John McBride. Uh, John is a former astronaut of Challenger fame and look forward to hearing uh, about things over at the Kennedy Space Center, particularly since we're right smack in the middle of a mission. Uh, at 11 o'clock, I welcome John Milton Fogg. He is an author and networker extraordinaire. You won't want to miss listening to John. At 11.30, I'll be joined by my co-host on our show, Corporate Escape Artists, with Pamela Skillings, the author of Escape from Corporate America. And we will be talking about finding opportunity in the midst of a pretty difficult economy. But right now, I would like to turn to our first guest this morning and let me get him on the air. Good morning, Dan. Dan, do I have you? Hang on one second. Sometimes uh, my switchboard here doesn't always no, work. There you we fine. go. Yeah, you hear me now? Good. <laughs> I do hear you. Good you, morning. Good morning to you. How's the weather in Boston? Oh, let's see. Looking out, I don't see any clouds. It's just blue sky, low 50s, gorgeous day. Well, that is really great. I am used to having that 335 days a year here in Florida, but today is unusual. And, you know, the last two days it's been like this, and I wonder how people who live in Seattle or in London or other places that, uh, you know, are frequented by clouds, how they cope with it because it really does get depressing. Well, it's, you know, life has ups and downs to it, and uh, (laughs) weather does too. New England is filled, I'm here in the Boston area, and, you know, weather just has this nice rhythm to it and changes. It's very much like life. It does. We would all get really bored if it was blue sky every day, although uh, I've got a a really good friend who is moving to San Diego this week, and I think that's what she's heading toward. Well, Dan, for those who don't know you, and uh, I think anyone who has touched technology at all in the last uh, 20-plus years has to have at least heard from you, but you are the co-creator, along with Bob Frankston, of the VisiCalc spreadsheet. Um, You also founded a company called Software Garden, uh, which you are, are uh, currently heading up, as I understand. Yes. And uh, I met you, actually, uh, actually never really met you until a, a, a few months ago, but uh, you came across my path, actually, I want to say it was 1984, and you'll have to correct me because you certainly know when you came out with the first demo program, but I was involved in designing a new technology to do expense reports online. Mm. And while today that doesn't seem to be a very big feat, 
if you will remember, and I know you do, uh, but our our listeners may not remember that in 1984, we didn't have a PC on every desk or a PC in every home. In fact, we didn't really have PCs much of anywhere. Um, but I came across uh, your product because I was working with Informix. Gosh, yeah. remember them? Yeah. Informix 4GL had just come out. And we were looking for a way uh, to develop this Unix front end. Uh, remember, most corporations were you know, big blue, very, very IBM. And we were looking for a way to allow people in the business world to do their expense reports when they got back from a trip. And we developed uh, an amazing front end uh, using Dan Bricklin's demo. And, you know, I don't know if this was broadly talked about, but we always uh, joked of, you know, is it live or is it Dan Bricklin? Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you were, uh, you know, an, an amazing person in our lives. And I, I actually, I think I told you, I didn't really even know you were a real person. I thought somebody had just come up with this name. Um, so so here you are, and, and it's just amazing to me to have you on my show. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. It's my pleasure. So it's always nice to hear stories about uh, about my demo program because most people know me for, for VisiCalc, for the spreadsheet. But all sorts of programmers remember me for this prototyping program uh, that was sort of king in the days of the character-based world. People oh, forget absolutely. that those early PCs. That was actually, I think, in '85, '86. You yeah, probably did it in '86, because right. um, um, I was still assembling the first units on my dining room table in the late '85, <laughs> and '86 um, is, I think, when we had it a little better out there. Well, I worked for uh, actually a division of American Airlines uh, known as Sabre, which many many people are familiar with because they are the technology behind Travelocity and behind many, uh -huh. many travel agencies. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be given uh, not only a pretty free reign, I was actually given $5 million by Bob Crandall. And for those who know him, uh, you know, he is, is uh, not always known to be loose with his, his money. And he was the uh -huh. CEO of American Airlines at the time. Uh -huh. And I went off and bought this little software company out in, in uh, the Bay Area. And we actually rented an apartment over in Hayward, um, uh, California, across uh, from you know what is now commonly known as Silicon Valley. Although back then, I, I'm not even sure it had that uh, that moniker. But uh, it was an exciting time in technology, Dan, and you were right smack dab in the middle of it. So, how did you get involved in technology so early? Because you're you're not so much older than I am. So well, what, what was I mean, the I, first I, What? What was your first foray? My first foray, well, I mean, it depends on what part of technology. I mean, as a as a child, I was interested in um, electronics and things like that. And those are the days when you would buy individual transistors and pay a lot of money for them. Um, and um, and tubes, I was even you know, working with them. Um, I first got interested in computers oh, in uh, when I first saw a card sorter. And uh, when I was a, a child, I was like probably in fifth grade, fourth grade. Um, but uh, I started learning to program. It was probably the mid-60s. It was around late, late mid-60s, around 67, um, when one of the local high schools had access to a time-sharing system. And um, I would go over there and use it. And I really took to the whole thing of programming and uh, then did it through the rest of high school and into college, et cetera. Always had access somehow. 
Very interesting. Well, my first corporate job actually was with Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, and I was uh, a card punch operator, and I was a, a horrible typist. Oh. So it, it was not a great first uh, contact with technology. But yeah, well, the first thing I typed into a computer was spelling. I spelled the name, the word wrong. So. <laughs> well, and that makes it a little hard for the computer to read. Yeah. Well, the word was dimension, you know, and, you know, T-I-O-N, S-I-O-N, you know. You know. <laughs> So where did you meet Bob? Uh, I met Bob Frankston. Uh, it was probably January of 1970. It was during my first year at MIT. And I was just starting a job working on the Multics project. Multics is a time-sharing system that was the precursor to Unix as we know it today, oh, wow. uh, among other things. And um, uh, Bob was just graduating and had um, uh, developed a particular system for using BASIC or something. And I was tasked with uh, finishing parts of it. And um, so we met uh, while I was working on that project, and he was working on that project. And a lot of us together would, uh, who were on that project got together oh, for dinner, for uh, late night uh, soirees out to breakfast, you know, because the computer would go till early in the morning. Right. Um, and we got to know each other really well that way. Huh. Very, very interesting. So over time, I mean, clearly technology changed pretty rapidly, and, and once in the late 80s, we started seeing personal computers become more ubiquitous. I mean, I, I was an early Macintosh user, so uh, I never got sucked into the PC side of things, and, and uh, uh, thankfully so from my perspective, because I, I am still in love with Macintosh today. But but we saw personal computers move uh, into business first uh, in, in the late 80s, and, and then really starting to penetrate homes. And then where were you, you know, around the advent of the Internet? And, and again, I'm quite certain that you touched the Internet long before most, oh, yeah. most I mean, regular folks. Well, the, the first connection I had with it was one of my friends of these people who would go out to dinner together and all um, worked on the hardware. Uh, his bachelor's thesis was to build the hardware to connect the multi-system to the beginning ARPANET. And that was in the uh, the early 70s. Um, and then we watched the ARPANET turn into what is now the Internet. And But my first connection with the web part of the Internet, as we know it, was um, in 1994, uh, my friend Bob, who was at the time working for Microsoft, uh, but working out of his home here in Boston, in, in uh, the Boston area, um, he had a uh, ISDN, ISDN connection back to Microsoft, which was at the time on the Internet. Right. And he demonstrated to me Mosaic, that early browser. And I videotaped it. Um, and every time he'd click on something, I'd have to push the pause button while we waited a minute for the page to respond. <laughs> uh, it was very slow in those days. And I'm going to post that video on the web one of these days. Um, oh, that would be I'm really great. into history with stuff. We've come a long way um, uh, from that. I mean, that, that was really early. There were barely any pictures. There were like, you know, there were only... Um, I think uh, it looked like a few dozen websites in all of a country, like Belgium. Um, and But things started growing, and I was working on a product called Trellix that um, was for writing linked page documents, uh, kind of like help files, but then eventually became web pages and websites. Right. And out of that, I got very close to the Internet and got into blogging in, really getting into blogging in 1999. And uh, 
Uh, I'm actually reading your page on Wikipedia, and uh, it, it talks about how you introduced the term friend-to-friend networking oh, on yeah, August well, 11th, 2000. What yeah, well, the Wikipedia is very random when it comes to individuals because they don't right. let you edit it yourself. Uh-huh. So it's people who don't know you who have to look for things that are online. And I happen to write an essay of the many essays on my website where I mention friend-to-friend network. And for some reason, they put that there as if it's an important thing. Um, I guess to some people it might be, but... Um, well, I mean, it has a new name now. I mean, it has it has social networking. And, well, and I don't know if I exactly called it that. I mean, that was for that reason. It was, yes, that it, when you're, it was about peer-to-peer when the people you were connecting to through peer-to-peer were trusted third parties. Right. And uh, it was a little more technical than today's. I, I wish I had invented, you know, a lot of the social networking and stuff like that, but that's um, that's more a lot of other people right now. Well, so I you take know, advantage. You were of. An, an early friend. <laughs> yes, I was an early friend, like uh, Evan Williams, who um, uh, is the head of Twitter. He was also the co-creator uh, or the co-founder of Pyra that did Blogger. And um, as I relate in my book, the um, blogger, the company that did Blogger was about to go under. They were running out of money. In fact, they ran out of money. And they put a, a help request out on a blog page. This is like an early type of sending a tweet out saying help. And uh, I relate the story about how my company came to the rescue and gave them some money, which uh, helped bloggers survive as a free service. And then eventually Google bought them. And then he made money and then used that to um, help found Twitter. So when did you start blogging? And and it probably wasn't even called blogging at the time. No. Uh, Well, it was. It had all sorts of names. And uh, but I started blogging in 1999. Um, I actually did something to somewhat extent similar a little before, but it was under Bricklin.com, my website. I started writing essays in early 1999, and in October I started writing a more traditional type of blog, which is around the time that Blogger was uh, came out using a different tool. Um, and that's when a lot of people, Dan Gilmore started blogging then. Um, a variety of bloggers started blogging around 1999-2000. And, and then others and got there, inspired later. Right. Was there a community amongst you? Did, did someone try to link those blogs together at any point in time? Well, we all linked to each other. I mean, that was the whole thing. And, um, you know, over the the next year or two, uh, the concept of a permanent link became much more common. In fact, that's one of the reasons you would want a tool like Blogger, because it automatically created those permanent links to each entry in the blog. In early blogs, uh, the posts just sort of sat there, and maybe you'd scroll them off onto an archive page. But the fact that you could link to an individual post was something that was developed over time and became sort of really important around around that time, right? around the uh, late 90s, early 2000 and so. Mm. And, um, but that, now, the importance of that is that we could each link to each other, and you ended up with your conversations between bloggers. And we had a lot of them in the early days. And you can read that in, if you read the early posts in my blog or any of the other blogs of those days. And so how did you get from your blog to actually deciding to write a book? Because as I understand it, your your book uh, contains uh, a lot of the material, uh, including the history that that you're so passionate about in this industry. 
um, ha- has made it now into your new book. Yes. Well, I, I got this call from a uh, vice president at Wiley Publishing saying, hey, Dan, you know, you have this blog and you have all these wonderful essays you've written. Why don't you turn it into a book? It's really easy. You know, you've written it already. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> and uh, then he passed me off to a uh, an acquisitions editor, Carol Long, who um, uh, sort of pushed on it for a while. And eventually I said yes, um, and um, realizing it was going to be a little harder than that. Because while I may have written it before, uh, to make the book worthwhile and readable in today's world, I really had to tie things together and write a lot of new material. And I have to go through things. And um, so I had the time. I had somebody pressuring me to do it um, who made good sense about it. And I did want to be able to have something that was in a different form than the website. Because, you know, if I stop paying my bills, the website disappears. And I have all the stuff that I've been writing for 10 years or more. And um, I wanted to be able to save that in some other form. And I'm the son of a printer, grandson of a printer, and a grandson of a uh, um, of an editor of a newspaper. And um, putting it in book form sounded like the right thing. So I went to a lot of trouble figuring out how to turn the form of a website and blog with the conversation among the readers and other bloggers into the book form. And uh, hopefully did a good job of it. Well, I, I love your your intro to the blog that you've written about turning a blog into a book yeah. because it says um, that and, and it's talking about this particular essay that you've written about this. The essay covers the process I went through to produce a book, and your book is called uh, Brooklyn on Technology, based on material I had previously published on the web. It's not meant as a how-to for everyone, but rather as food for thought for others considering doing the same. Mm-hmm. A lot of the information I see on the web about doing this is centered on how to get a book contract, how how to structure your new, your new blog as a gateway to a book, or publishing it yourself. And you know, I think that that that's a really interesting observation, Dan, because. I have joined a couple of, of groups online uh, for authors, and, and I've written a number of books. But uh, similar to uh, your first approach with your blogs, my my books were about the technology for my industry, and so they didn't have broad appeal, mm-hmm. and and they they weren't something that everyone would pick up at Amazon, you know, or Borders. It was something sold just to my industry. Now, fortunately, it also sold for close to a thousand dollars. Uh, for my first book, so you know, you really only had to sell a couple of hundred, right. uh, you know, to make make back your your investment. But how long did the process take you of going from from the blog uh, itself to uh, the time when you turned over a manuscript that was ready for publishing by Wiley? Uh, let's see. Well, I started a little bit of work in last June, um, doing some sample chapters. Uh-huh. And then, um, but I was also doing other things. It was, was not a full-time thing. And we went then back and forth to work out a design that would work with their their publishing techniques. It was very restricted that it had to work through Word in a certain way, and they couldn't do uh, things manually in layout. Uh, the book had to be a certain physical size, so uh-huh. I couldn't use the page to indicate things that you would get from links and things. Um, and... I chose the material, um, I think it was in the late summer, or basically I went through all my material, 
and printed out things I thought might be interested, interesting and put them in piles and went through the piles and threw out things and organized it. Um, and then uh, the first full manuscript went in uh, in November wow. and then back and forth with them. Uh, with um, uh, That was after some editing I had on my side. Then they, right. they edited it and they actually finished it. I think it was like in... Oh, like um, February or so, we had the last back and forths of edits. Right, right. And they're pretty fast at getting the book out. And by April, it was printed. Wow, that, so, that's encouraging. That's yeah. really encouraging. Yeah, well, thinking but a lot of my that. material luckily existed. Um, I was writing and, you know, uh, I wrote a lot of new material for it. I chose material that I hope regular people would be able to read. It's not aimed at techies. It's right. aimed at people who like technology or want to learn more about how it's developed, how it evolves, you know, how people use it. Uh, it's not a how-to on uh, on how to on you know how to program or anything like that. Right. No, I enjoyed like I enjoyed the aspects of the book, as you said, that you've got this passion for history, and you and I were talking yesterday. Uh, about the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, and then taking that all the way up to current day of how are we preserving uh, our legacy, even just for our families, about things that we've written. Uh, it's funny because uh, about 12 years ago, uh, my husband and I had been married for almost eight years and, and decided to have a child. And mm-hmm. I wa- went through, and I, I can't even remember what tool I was using at the time. I, I was on AOL, so this was in, um, it was in the late 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wrote uh, a blog uh, about the whole process of infertility. Uh-huh. And uh, AOL recently got rid of those blogs. And oh. thankfully, I found uh, an archive of it somewhere, and it wasn't on my system. Yeah, people but use Google sometimes been, for that, the Google cache. Yeah, that would have been gone forever. Oh, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I, I know you've thought a lot about that, oh, yeah. and, and you did read, uh, write about the whole issue of legacy in your book. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it was just a shame going through my book. You know, I was going to these old, not so old blog posts, and they linked to things, and the pages weren't there. Luckily, we had archive.org, which yes. is a website, the Wayback Machine, uh, named after, I guess, um, the old days of Mr. Sherman and his, uh, his um, you know, on, uh, what was it, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. Um, it was... Uh, they have spidered the web and made copies of whatever they could, and you can go back and see what what things were. It's wonderful. So I had to do that. Um, And so even in the last few years, things disappear. And what really bothers me is that um, we often put technology in place to make that hard, this whole thing of copy protection and, um, and other techniques that are used to control access make it really hard for archivists to archive things. Yes. Um, and we sort of want to decide now what we think is worthwhile for the future rather than let the future decide what they want. Um, and then we have the problem of incompatible formats. What, so you really have to think hard, like, what format do I want to do things? Say phonographs. Well, if you have a photograph and you have a list of what's on those photographs, one way is to have some special database that tells you that. But the chances of, in the future, that database product that you bought working are slim. So it might be worthwhile instead, if you have a list of who's in a picture on the back of the picture, flip it over and take a picture of the back of the picture. 
because then at least it's stored in the picture because we're pretty sure JPEGs will be readable, uh, the, the format you get from cameras will be readable in the future because there's so many of them, and that's a format like ASCII that we've continued with for many years, will probably continue in the future to be readable at least. Okay, um, Make as many copies as possible. The reason we have a lot of, um, of religious documents that go back uh, you know, many hundreds or thousands of years are because people made copies of them and put them in multiple places. Um, sometimes only one place survived, but that's all it took. The same thing with your photographs and the things that you write. Um, make sure all your relatives have copies of everything. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, how you also get the same per, or same story told from a different perspective. I mean, you know, I mean, the Bible's a great example of that. Of of everything that's talked about in in First Samuel or, or First Kings also appears in Chronicles, and right. uh, so so written in a different voice. Uh, like, you know, blogs that are talking about the same event, or even, I, I guess, I mean, I can't imagine somebody going in and wanting to archive Twitter uh, just because of the randomness of, of that form. Well, in hindsight, we might want to find something there. There, There's some incredible, you know, that's the thing. Uh, I mean, like I showed in, uh, what is it, the, the chapter on blogging, I took one piece of the time in blogging, the Democratic National Convention in 2004, when bloggers were first treated in, in some reasonable fashion by, um, you know, in the news uh, gathering business. Right. Uh, in that case, by the, um, the DNC was, was trying to treat them reasonable. And it's interesting to see how they were viewed by going back and reading the stuff that was written then um, and comparing and contrasting. Right. But who knew, you know, what you wanted to save? Um, so sometimes it's, it's better. In today's world, we have these big hard disks that are really cheap. It's easier to save everything than decide in advance what to throw out. Exactly. exactly. And later yeah, on, take I, care I was, of it. Uh, I was picturing somebody uh, uh, going through Twitter in its current uh, form, but you're right with tools like Search Twitter and yes. and other things that have emerged, uh, you know, to make that reasonable. But you know, I, I like your uh, suggestion that people make sure that your relatives have copies because I mean, how many times have we heard people, you know, and I mean, their hard disk crashes yes. and you know they they are left just to replace it, and that's the only place that their photos exist. And mm. I mean, what's, it's really a shame. What's really cool is because. Um, the way advancement works in technology so far, um, all of the material you have on your hard disk now fits in the corner of the next hard disk that you buy. <laughs> right. So that all of your photographs that you used to have that used to take up half of your disk won't take up much in the next disk. So that, um, so for example, if your if your kids are going away to college and you're giving them you know a laptop to take with them, load up all the pictures in the corner of that laptop. Right. It's a little harder when it comes to videos and things like that because those now are a, are a little too big. Um, but we're getting there you know, to start digitizing some of those. And I did that, for example, my copy of VisiCalc. There's a copy of VisiCalc that you can run that's the original IBM PC VisiCalc that I put on my website. And people can download it, and thousands and thousands have. So there's a good chance a copy will survive. Right. Luckily, that's a copy that was created without copy protection. That was an internal copy, so it continues to work today. Had it been copy protected, it wouldn't have been able to continue to work, and therefore it would be lost to history. 
Very, very interesting. Well, you know, one of the things I'm considering doing over over the summer, because I'm going to take my show on hiatus for the summer, is actually going back and and listening to all of the different shows. I think I've done over 100 uh, since February Mm. when the show launched and actually try to put those down into a different form uh, and and actually write about the best of Solutions Live over this time because I have just uh, interviewed some amazing people and uh, to be able to take some of those snippets and, and, uh, you know, to get those into a book is is my vision for the summer. So I'm really glad to hear about the amount of time it took you uh, on on the blog side. But I didn't have to listen to hours and hours. I only had a few hours of podcasts that I ended up putting into it. True, but you know, I'm really looking forward to it because I think you and I talked about this yesterday. That you know, when when you uh, are in the midst of an interview, uh, even if you take notes, you, you really don't get everything that's being said. And that's right. and so I am really looking forward to taking that time. Oh yeah, no, you'll have a great time just listening to all your stuff because you have yeah. you know all these people on who've been, uh, you know, who have lots of great stuff to say, right. and um, in hindsight, often things have greater meaning because you didn't get what they meant because it was the first time you heard it. Totally, totally, and understanding that context is really important. So, so Dan, what would you say to people who have been kind of playing around it at blogging or, or trying to find a way to leave uh, the legacy of what, what's inside their head? Maybe they, they don't have a book in them. What, what would you encourage them to do? Well, continue blogging because that's a way of putting it down. Um, do whatever, given whatever blogging software you have, make sure you keep archived copies of it off of the blogging system, like back on your system uh, or whatever, print out, I mean, some way so that you won't lose it if it goes away. And if you're interested in turning it into a book, um, well, definitely look at what I did and uh, see what others do before and after um, uh, to see how, you know, different ways of being able to present that but the book is just a subset of what's on the website. Right, exactly. But it may be the essence that you want to, um, or one of the essences that you want to be able to extract and share with others. That can be very valuable. And you'll learn things about yourself by and by what you wrote by reading it. I mean, I couldn't write the end or the beginning of the book until I had finished the rest to see what I ended up with, and I was surprised. Absolutely. Well, Dan, can you tell people how to get in touch with you and remind them of the name of your book uh, as we close? Right. The easiest way to find me is on my website, bricklin.com. That's B-R-I-C-K-L-I-N as in Nancy.com. And on there, you'll see um, a uh, – you can get to my website about my book, Bricklin on Technology, and you can buy the book most anywhere books are sold. Terrific. Well, Dan, it has been just an absolute delight and uh, brings me full circle after more than 20 years uh, with somebody who actually shaped my life. So thank you so much for leaving that legacy in me. And uh, I am hoping to share with you my book, uh, which recaps what's been going on on Solutions Live. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it a lot. Looking forward to your book. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.